0: Thank you so much. I've, I've rarely been treated to such a content-filled introduction, and I do appreciate that. I do appreciate that. So thank you. And I want to thank Barbara for this invitation to speak here. It's, it's been a wonderful opportunity to learn about DIJ and the important work that it's doing, not only in demography, but, now, but more recently in the topic of uh, research on happiness. So for those of you who are interested in happiness, stay tuned, stay tuned. It's just beginning, as I understand it. Um, So uh, it's true. I think race is a very difficult topic to talk about, and yet it's it's persistent. And and what I'm talking about really is the notion of its persistence and perhaps using Japan and attitudes toward uh, President Obama as a kind of case study. So what I'd like to do is is work backwards in time and and look at this. It's not as uh, as if I understand all pieces placed together very neatly. And I think my point tonight is to examine separate pieces, examine some of the contradictions perhaps, and throw it out to you, throw it in your court, and see what we can make of it together. So here's one piece. And by now, especially with the change of government more recently, this seems like an old slide, but bear with me, sorry. So the first piece, November 13th, 2009, it was the first day of President Barack Obama's visit to Japan. And the Washington Post reported this. He said, Mr. Obama has plenty of personal capital to work with here in Japan when the Pew Research Center conducted a survey of global attitudes toward the United States over the summer, an overwhelming 12- 85% at that time of Japanese citizens said they were optimistic about Mr. Obama's leadership. In fact, the approval rating of President Obama in Japan was higher at that time than in the United States, where the figure hovered around 54% during the same period. And even though southern Japan may have been disappointed, um, that Obama did not position himself as strongly in, as they had wished to support moving the U.S. military bases in Okinawa. It was evident that a high level of popularity of President Obama continued into 2009 and 2010. In citizen blogs, after his <clears throat> brief Tokyo trip, and in particular focusing on his meeting with the emperor and the empress, Obama was praised in Japan, for a sense of respect, some for his charisma, and some for his charm. <clears throat> so that's piece number one. Piece number two. Six months before Obama's visit to Japan, a journalist, uh, Itsuko Hirata, apparently a big fan of Barack Obama's, along with illustrator Kiju Kawana, published a small English teaching book entitled Yes, I Can, with Obama um, and taking bits and pieces of Obama's life. The book constructed 40 short lessons in English, so it's basically an English teaching book using Obama's life. And through the illustrations which I'll show you later, um, becomes an exotic, sometimes hapless, sometimes cowering simian figure, one of a menagerie of animals that eventually occupies the White House. And then third is an advertisement, which we're about to see, Um, for a mobile phone company ran on national Japanese television in 2008, but for one month only. Um, After much public criticism, primarily from foreigners living in Japan, and including a contingent of African-Americans, it was yanked from the airwaves. And I have just come back from Shizuoka, in in which I interviewed the leader of that protest by an African-American, 34 years resident in Japan, by the name of Malcolm Adams. So here's the ad. I think I can show it. (laughs) I it, now, okay. So in, in the presentation tonight, I'm attempting to reconcile some of these, these three pieces and maybe some others that you want to chime in as well to what I consider these kinds of contradictory understandings of Barack Obama in Japan focusing on race or the espoused potential potential for post-raciality as this complex web of ideology, history, and culture. So beginning with his presidential campaign and extended into his presidency, Japanese citizens and others have found in Obama a kind of mantra of change. Um, And it is a mantra that speaks to many Japanese, disaffected by their own political system, and it is a mantra that's easily co-opted. By, by leaders, including most recently the new Prime Minister, whose, I guess, t-shirt now says, uh, yes, yes, I, or yes, we, can." Uh, <laughs> so among the, re- I know, it's such a bad joke. Among the revolutionary elements of change residing in the election of Barack Obama is that of race. Um, being the first mixed blood African-American president And when I ask many of his fans in Japan, they claim that Obama's race, whether African-American or mixed, plays little or no part in his image or popularity. And yet, Japan is a country whose blood ideology persists. So this ideology plays a part in defining who may or may not be considered, quote, Japanese, whether legally, culturally, or racially. It is an ideology that combines with historic relations with the United States and its own racialism. The popularity of Barack Obama must thus be placed within a history of African American encounters and images in Japan. So in this presentation tonight, I'm asking these questions that I, I list here. So first, how is Obama's purported post-raciality inflected by the persistence of blood ideology in contemporary Japan? How does race, take, in this instance, take on different kinds of guises, whether vetted as commodity or nullified by humor? So this is, and in this presentation, I really take this as a fairly pre- uh, preliminary, I don't have the answers, a preliminary exploration of these. <coughs> And gathering materials for this research have included traveling to the town of Obama in Fukui Prefecture, um, and interviewing a number of prominent figures there, including the mayor and various leaders of the Obama movement there. Um, collecting Obama goods in Japan and a textual analysis of Japan, Japanese um, media coverage of Obama's election and subsequent presidency. First, let me turn to what's called what was called Obama fee fever. And this was really more a function during the election in 2008. Um, so this remote fishing village of Obama, population 32,000, um, Fuku'i Prefecture, um, adopted a new prodigal son, that is, U.S. President Barack Obama, and solely on the basis of a shared name. these The residents and officials of the town of Obama, um, since the U.S. presidential campaign and continuing to the present, Present have asserted a long-distance connection to Barack Obama. As a result, the village Obama um, has become a media sensation in Japan and elsewhere. It got sort of global coverage, with the goal of, uh, and, and this slide is showing chopsticks, um, which obama She is famous for, and indeed, this is considered a shrine to Obama, and people can leave money in the box at the bottom that you see there. Um, So, um, and with a goal of economic revitalization, such as tourism, and village branding, the linking of Obamatown to the U.S. president was celebrated with festivals, parades, an array of goods, such as these. This is Obama manju, Obama hamburger. Um... And furthermore, the newly formed Obama girls and boys, well, the the boys aren't there, only the girls are there, um, and an interloper from Hawaii as well. The hula troupe has performed at uh, the village's celebrations of the U.S. presidential inauguration, traveled to Hawaii in March 2009 to perform at the Honolulu Festival. And the head of the Obama support group in Obama describes him variously as tall and stylish and has a good voice, so I interviewed him. And, or, and he also says he's good-looking and cool, looks cool. So for this small, isolated village as Obama, the borrowed celebrity, what I call borrowed celebrity, created on the coattails of Barack Obama, may be seen as a source of, sure, communal pride, but also village identity and, most importantly for them, a kind of tourism derived revenue. An enormous variety of goods trails the celebrity of President Obama in Japan as elsewhere. And in February 2009, the head of Tokyo Sushi Academy, Chef Kawasumi Ken, created Obama's sushi roll and display. So here he is with his display. And besides an array of goods that includes T-shirts, chopsticks, keychains. The most notable are action figure dolls that display a provocative, some might say fetishized interpretation of the president. And one fan posted a website. So these are pictures from his website, picturing his own customizations of the U.S. Obama action figure doll. So as I, I don't think I need to describe these too much, really, because the, the pictures say more than I could. Um, these various kinds of guises, you, you know. <laughs> it doesn't have him walking on water, but just about. <laughs> and then at the end of the long day, what does he do? But he ra- relaxes, like any Sarariman, right, Under the, with the kotatsu and the requisite number of Mekong. Um, (laughs) All right. Meanwhile, uh, this book also. Uh, became quite popular in Japan, published as a compilation in English with Japanese translation and an accompanying CD, speeches of Barack Obama, um, have become this best-selling source of not only English language instruction, but also what I call commodified model citizenship. So two months after its release in November 2008, the book had already sold more than 420,000 copies. The book provides annotations on the meanings and significance of Obama's words, creating a primer on being a responsible global citizen, Obama style. So the publication thus analyzes Obama's speeches for the enunciation of political ideas alongside the pronunciation of his words. And these manifestations of Obama mania in Japan as it was called, gives no hint that the American uh, president is anything but white. However, there is a more highly racialized side of Obama mania in Japan as well, um, comedian Nozomi Sato, uh, nicknamed Mr. Nochi, created a popular persona imitating Obama, especially during the presidential campaign. I apologize; I don't have a picture of Mr. Nochi. Um, a- apparently, a lot of the YouTube of Mr. Nochi have been pulled from the web. So, I, um, so he basically he does Obama imitation in dark face through tanning salons. And imitation of the speech, physical mannerisms of the American president with the slogan, Yes, we can. Um, he's, it, but, but since then, um, Mr. Nochi has not been doing Obama song lately. And so that, that sort of phase of it has, has indeed ended. And uh, Obama Mania also includes that, that television commercial that I showed earlier, it also includes canned coffee. Perhaps those of you who were around in Tokyo at the time in 2008 remember the canned coffee with Obama on the cover, um, no, uh, uh, sold by San, Santori as black boss during the U.S. presidential campaign. <laughs> um, so let me turn now to a discussion of blood ideology in Japan, especially since this forms the basis of what some might call the, quote, inevitable racialism of Obama in spite of post-racial ideals. So much of his belief in the power of blood rests in upholding distinctions made between purity and pollution, Um, particularly as emphasized in Shinto. The impure include both those of non-Japanese blood as well as those of mixed blood. So it's easy to see where Barack Obama fits both categories. So what is attributed to blood? What is called chinutsunagari, include both physical, that is, hair, skin color, etc., and spiritual characteristics, such as Yamato Damashi, or the the kind of the spirit of the the Japanese. These blood attributes paint a picture of not only the ideal person, but also the true model citizen, the full-fledged Japanese. Here, the isomorphism between race, nation, culture, makes blood a powerful common denominator. So what is more telling are those traits considered indicative of bad or polluted blood, and these include things like mental illness, physical deformity, uh, criminality, suicide, epilepsy, colorblindness, hemophilia, feeble-mindedness, the list goes on and on. Japan is thus considered a ketsuen shudan, or community of blood, reinforced by geographic isolation, religion, economics, ostracism, politics, filial piety, and arranged marriages. So at the head of that community is the emperor, who derives his place through purportedly unbroken blood ties to ancestral, ties, uh, to ancestral deities that originated from the sun goddess. Um, within the blood ideology of Japan, the distinction between purity and pollution is not the only issue. Of equal importance is a hierarchy among different races, as determined by the color of the skin and the placement of Japanese within this hierarchy. So long before contact with Europeans or Africans, Japanese associated white skin with beauty, purity, wealth, and status. So darker skin symbolized the negation of these elements, although the exact components of that negation was not clearly drawn. These indigenous notions combined with highly racialized Western ideas. So notions of scientific racism flourished in Europe and America at about the same time that the Meiji government of Japan sought to import, uh, to Im- import Western ideas as part of Japan's modernization project. So notions of race thus came hand in hand um, with modernity, prestige, and power. Meiji intellectuals ascribed to an evolutionary array of cultures with white-skinned peoples on top, yellow-skinned peoples in the middle, black-skinned peoples on the bottom. On a physical level and in the context of world power, whites were superior with their whiter skin, more specifically a different kind of whiteness, as, as Tanizaki would talk about, and larger bodies. However, in a domestic context, Japanese skin and bodies were considered discontinuous with whites and therefore not of a scale that could be compared with Japanese skin and bodies. In other words, Japanese skin and bodies were considered most appropriate for the particularistic conditions of Japan. Among Asians, Japanese considered themselves the whitest and therefore the most racially and morally superior. Thus, in the larger scheme of things, Japanese, in contradistinction to other Asians, became a kind of near-white. This hierarchical ambiguity held no place in evaluations of darker skin, including that of Pacific Islanders, Latinos, Africans, African-Americans. There was no question that blackness was undesirable with its symbolic associations. Concomitantly, black skin in Japan indicated unequivocal lower status, reinforced by images of manual labor. Japanese also utilized another gauge of hierarchy that focused less on race and more on purity, This was the purported moral superiority of Japanese. As John Dower puts it, although Japanese felt that they could not always and necessarily claim physical or intellectual superiority globally, what they could claim was moral superiority. This claim of virtuousness was made on the basis of the pure blood-based lineage of the emperor in combination with exceptional homogeneity of the people. By this line of thinking, to be of pure blood was to be morally superior to others who could not make this claim. So Barack Obama, then, by virtue of his mixed race and his African blood, falls again doubly short. This kind of negative attitude toward blackness and mixed race shape any kind of interactions and images of African Americans in Japan. This is not to suggest that there cannot be African American heroes in contemporary Japan, especially from entertainment, sports, and fashion. Nor is it to suggest that in particular times there cannot be a certain quote cool quotient attached to African American cultural expression, especially through jazz, hip hop, and reggae. But it is to suggest that Japan's long history of uniqueness and ascription assert- and helped foster latent notions of racial uniqueness and implicit superiority. In interacting with the West, and its forms of racism, and defining the world situation from late 19th century in racialized terms, Japan not only began to adopt racial ideas from the West, but also began to refine and elaborate upon indigenous notions. So the result of this history is a persistent and complex racialized distance perceived between Japanese and African Americans. This can be expressed in indigenous terms, relational terms, such as uchi and soto. These divides provide a kind of spatialized definition of affiliation and identity, helping conceptualize who or what might be considered a stranger to oneself. Note that soto expresses only distance, but not necessarily hierarchy. Thus, a pedestal, putting someone on a pedestal, can be a distant position from oneself the ironic and ambivalent workings of racialized distance can be can simultaneously place blacks on a high pedestal of cool global pop culture dominated by the united states and its african american heritage while retaining a hint of their constructed simian presence here the umbrella soto process works both to elevate and demean in fact it is this soto simian mix that is a blend that can be infantilized, sexualized, dehumanized, and, and or commodified that becomes the racialized trope of the African-American image in Japan. And I'd like to hold on to this notion of the Soto-Simeon mix. It did not necessarily start out that way, in spite of blood ideology, and notions of pollution that would lead to a conflation of Africans and African-Americans. In spite of that, Japanese initially recognized the very distinct difference between the two based on their respective nationalities. Um, As Yukiko Koshiro explains, to Japanese eyes, African-Americans, in contrast with Africans, were colored yet modern and westernized. In this, then, it was not race so much as nation and class that mattered. However, over time, as Japan gained a kind of confidence in its own ability to progress to, quote, a higher level of civilization along with white Westerners, end quote, evaluation of the African Americans gave way to more racialized beliefs. In this, to be modern was to accept the racialized, discriminatory attitudes of Euro-America. This flip-flop, from wanting to join African Americans as fellow people of color to adopting a new distancing near-white stance circumscribes what has been called Japan's dualistic racial identity. Those discriminatory attitudes, borrowed in part from white racist attitudes conveyed in earlier centuries, set the stage for ongoing productions of African-American stereotypes, often characterized by Simian undertones. The Soto-Simian blend can prompt desire as well as disdain, adulation as well as fear, placing African-Americans at a distance from Japanese. Even when the cool of the counterculture of the 1960s and 70s combines with a mainstreaming of African-American music as pop, and when that cool develops into heated frenzy over black um, superstars, there is still a sense of the ongoing soto distance, that kind of they're, they're not us, we are not them. Um, this is distance that, comp- that can potentially be broached through co-optation and commodification. One example rests in the English-language book that I, w- I mentioned at the beginning of this talk, Yes, I Can, by Itsuko uh, Hiata. In some ways, much of the di- dichotomy that I'm discussing rests in the construction of the book. So this is the front cover of the book, but here's the back cover of the book. It's a cartoon drawing of a mo- baby monkey Obama smirking, wearing a T-shirt that says, I can. And if one considers these to be front and backstage bookends, then the implied message is that behind the accomplished politician is this sheepishly smirking, infantilized Simeon. Between these two covers, lie some of the books in more egregiously demeaning images, all with this kind of lurking simian presence. So here are some, Obama as a young boy living in Indonesia, being taught by monkeys, Obama as a cigarette-smoking, basketball-playing, liquor-drinking, if you see, um, African-American hood in hip-hop clothing, although his oversized t-shirt says Hawaii. <clears throat> Obama is a young man visiting his African grandmother surrounded by animals. And the depictions of the relationship between Barack Obama and wife Michelle Obama in fact are some of the most arresting. (laughs) Here you see Barack cowering before dominatrix Michelle and otherwise entirely infantilized in her presence. And then finally you see Obama skateboarding to the White House. Um, and, and, and the reason for, to me in my mind for sort of looking at these quite clearly is to show ways in which the slippage into soto racism always simmers seems seemingly just below the surface. There is another alternative Japanese attitude toward African Americans, that of forging alliances between persons of color. Um, that is you, Shokujin vis-a-vis whites. As Meiji leaders initially sought, as subcultural youth have done through rap and reggae, so here is Japan's dualistic racial identity that I mentioned earlier. This attitude requires rejecting white hegemony, including its racial hierarchy. The possibilities of this attitude rest in larger contexts of alliance building and positioning in which Japan has engaged sporadically over the years. If Japan accepts the white-dominant hierarchy, including the opportunity to place itself as, quote, near whites, then it sees little purpose in a black alliance. However, if Japan joins forces in subverting white hegemony, then it turns its back upon near-white status and asserts the right to a kind of colored position. To a certain extent, this was Japan's rationale during the Pacific War, when it anointed itself as the regional and racialized leader. So where do these Japanese positionings leave us in 2010 regarding Obama? In many ways, Japanese might be surprised by the interpretation, particularly by non-Japanese, of some of its Obama expressions as racially offensive. It is not as if there is no such critique in Japan, but that outsiders' voices might carry particular weight in a country still looking over its shoulder to see where it stands in terms of global prestige and geopolitics. Japan was surprised in the late 1980s when outsiders criticized the adoption by toymaker Takara as company logo, the dakko-chang dolls, um, here. They were surprised in 2001 when foreign observers uh, protested the display of caricatured black mannequins and little black Sambo dolls by a Japanese department store. Many Japanese were surprised by foreign reaction to the monkey Obama mimicry cell phone ad that I showed. Itsuko Hirata, um, uh, author of the book, uh, calls herself a fan of the president. In response to my email inquiries, she writes, I am a fan of the president because he has a great talent, not only for the philosophy and politics, but also for the dance and the music. She positions Obama as a healer with, quote, miracle words, even as she places him in the middle of stereotypes of African-Americans referencing an affinity for dance and music. In response to my query about the illustrations, Ms. Hirata offers little explanation except Kiju is is a quite famous illustrator and this is his style. So so she just relegates it to style. So what are we to make of this and other racially based simian representations of Obama, including enthusiastically supportive ones? The most common refrain heard from Japanese defenders is that these representations have no racist intent, that they are merely entertainment and not meant to debase anyone. In fact, some Japanese criticized Americans for their inherently racist attitudes in interpreting the cell phone Obama monkey ad, uh, ad negatively. So they, turned the, the, they said, it's your fault for interpreting this as racist. So citing America's history of racism and slavery, they ask, who is the real racist? By contrast, they say the commercial was only meant as lighthearted humor. The problem with this counter-critique is that it does not recognize racism as a process of defining on the basis of race, whether done maliciously, admiringly, or in humor. It's, be- it's-, it's the race-ism of it. Indeed, slander, praise, and jokes can be equally virulent forms of racialized practices. Japanese claim naivete, when it comes to race relations and a lack of experience specifically with African-Americans. Falling back upon the homogeneity myth, they claim this naivete based upon a population in which race is officially not an issue. They claim monoraciality as not only a social condition but also, infamously, a virtue. Armed with an uchi soto, political cultural logic, Japanese responsibility and expectation of knowing only falls within the uchi uchi purview, within the us. Others, soto, may easily fall prey to any number of images, stereotypes, representations with little critique or domestic repercussion. Clearly, power works to blunt scrutiny. The problem with this position is that it assumes Japan to retain a shimaguni, or island country, isolation, as if no one else might be looking over their shoulder, or that those soto others might not have a voice in their own representation. In reality, the world, even within Japan, is far far too complex and intermixed to still claim shimaguni status. The protests against the Obama monkey cell phone ad came initially from African Americans living in Japan, news of the incident quickly spread to American media, which they, they purposely uh, put the news out on CNN, and like Nakasone's racist remarks of 1986 or the Little Black Sambo Dolls of 2001, this advertisement, the cell phone ad, becomes part of the legacy of Japan's racialism before a global audience. It's the globalness of the audience that surprised Japanese. The legacy paints Japan as always and ever racist, founded in blood ideology, purity pollution divides, and a fascistic streak. However, this legacy also points to a continuing history of ideas of race borrowed from Western powers and indigenized as Japan's own. Racialization as a process of affirming soto otherness as based in blood ideology invites the simian presence, as it permeates at least some representations of Barack Obama in Japan. The story, however, I, I could end here, all right, and it would be one story. But if it's actually a, a bit more complex than that, so let's let's turn to the monkey. Um, another aspect to define. in the defense of simian projection of Obama, is the honored place of monkeys in Japan, specifically the Japanese macaque. During early early periods of Japanese history, the monkey was viewed reverentially as a mediator between animals and humans. As Emiko Onikitirni explains, monkeys have been used as metaphors for Japanese in fundamental ways, as social creatures exhibiting cooperation for survival joint ownership of resources with souls and personalities. Indeed, I just came from the monkey mountain up, uh, um, by, uh, outside of Kyoto, and of the 100-plus monkeys that are living there, each has a name and is identified by name. They are seen, monkeys are seen to have emotions, sociability, and the capacity for empathy. Uh, if you'll note, the cell phone ad ended with the monkey with a tear falling down, right? They So monkeys imitate and perform comfortable on stage. In one television program I viewed in the 1990s, a monkey trainer was forced to retire an older monkey because of his increasing failure to perform well, so what? How do you how do you let a monkey go? Is is the question? The owners decided to do this, uh, much as one might handle a human employee. So basically, he took the old monkey aside, sat him down, they shared uh, they shared sake, and they left with you know arm in arm kind of thing. The ambiguity of the human-monkey divides lies in the fact that monkeys share abilities that are considered a valuable part of Japanese society. They communicate, but do so non-verbally. They form affectionate bonds, yet make few demands. They are the ideal companion for many Japanese because of their silent co-presence. In the cell phone ad, as you saw, they even shed tears, the ultimate. And yet... Japanese clearly understand that monkeys are not humans, and vice versa. Except for those in the wild, every monkey has a human trainer. In fact, it is the monkey-human interaction, as foe equaled, that becomes part of the public's fascination As Onoki Tierney explains, she says this, Japanese are aware of the simultaneous proximity and distance between themselves and the monkey. When they allow proximity, they view the monkey as a deity that is close enough to humans to be a mediator. When they are threatened and wish to keep the monkey at a distance, the monkey can can be regarded negatively as a scapegoat. But yet a third option exists, which which Onoki Tierney doesn't really cover. Monkey as spectacle, as object of sometimes uneasy laughter, that challenges basic assumptions of what it means to be human and Japanese. So this is monkey as uncanny. And indeed, this is the place of yatchang and Fukchang, two trained monkeys who work in a tavern, kaya, uh, Kayabukiya, north of Tokyo. So here's a very brief segment from the CNN clip on... When you order a beer at Kayabuki Tavern, the waiter scampering to your table is in a monkey suit, a real one. From the hot hand towels to the ashtrays to taking your money and delivering your change, 5-year-old Fukuchan and 12-year-old Yachan are working the tables, unlike thousands of food service employees who are expected to lose their jobs this year. It's a tough time for Tokyo's 160,000 residents. Okay, enough of that. <laughs> we, can, we can continue seeing the rest of the CNN clip, but it's a little bit long, so I'll, I'll stop there. Um, in, this, in Japanese media coverage of these monkey waiters, the most frequently used adjective to describe them is kawaii or cute, even cho kawaii, super cute. In fact, we may look to the concept of kawaii to begin to understand at least one aspect of Japanese racialism and the place of Obama within it. Obama depicted as a monkey, miniaturizes him and makes him endearing. This is the entertainment argument rephrased. So if Obama as a monkey, though, one might ask, who is his trainer supposed to be? So kawaii links up not only to the cute, but also to the pitiable kawaii soul. The list of what is considered kawaii ranges from babies, puppies, hello kitty, to smiling, benign centenarians. What these share is the elicitation of affect based in their neediness. So this is the affective labor. Here is where race plays a measurable card. Whereas African Americans may invoke fear or danger, they may be rendered kawaii if depicted as infantile, hapless, and vulnerable. Indeed, size matters here to reinforce the cuteness of the object So this is the simian displacement drawn in Hirata's book, by which Obama is made into a small kawaii monkey. So what becomes a monkey most? Nothing less than a coat, tie, and cheering crowds by which he may mimic those in power, followed by a tear to affirm just how near human he is. It's the uncanniness of it all, right? It is the sense of mimicry of matter out of place, the racialized border zone that defines the simian presence of Japan's Obama. He may be, quote, good-looking, tall, and, and cool, as described earlier, but as one observer told me, Japanese love his ears. Why? Because it makes his simian vulnerability complete, especially as seen from behind. The monkey allows other possibilities as well. People in Japan may feel a greater sense of affinity, even intimacy, with a monkey than with a supremely accomplished person. A monkey represents the underdog with which Japanese publicly identify. This is Japan as victim, not victor. For some Japanese, a monkey aligns Obama with minority status, whether as African American or mixed. Obama's minority positioning allows Japanese to potentially connect with him more easily than if he were white. They connect with him as as another person of color in a white-dominant world. This proves tenuous ground for Japanese, belonging to an alliance of coloreds, suggests relinquishing one's earned status as honorary white. Here is the dualistic racial identity, again, a dilemma for Japanese. The cute factor works here as well, pulling the president down to the level of the people, placing within a frame of knowability that surpasses racial and even species divide. To admire and respect a leader is one thing, but to cherish a person through the kawaii frame suggests affective bonds. Here is how one Japanese fan I interviewed from Obama a Town describes his relationship with President Obama. So this is what he said. He said, in all of Japan, I'm probably only one wearing this, and he he used his Obama shirt all day. I have it on all the time, all day. I'm like this all the time, whether I'm in Tokyo or Nagoya, all the time. Come to think of it, isn't he, that is Obama, the first American president to whom Japanese people refer to as San? Did we say Kennedy-sang or Bush-sang? We didn't, right? So only Obama-sang is called Obama-sang. I think Japanese people find it easy to relate to him, not that he lacks dignity, but he just has that special quality about him. He's easy to relate to. This notion being easy to relate to is, um, is, I think, becomes key to a personal relationship that acknowledges the pedestal of the position while asserting the approachability of the man. The word this Japanese fan and others often use to describe the feeling they have toward Obama is shi or intimacy. It is this ability to proffer intimacy through the common touch, as minority, even as monkey, that is the draw. So in a social world in which ties are all important, ascribing intimacy to relationship with the world leader is no small feat. This intimacy transcends position, nation, race, and species. So in her ethno-historical study of monkeys and performance in Japanese culture, Onuki Tierney suggests that monkeys' proximity to a human-animal boundary, whether as mediator, scapegoat, or clown, makes it a reflective, reflexive mirror upon humans, and thus Japanese. So this is a mirror that does more than reflect it comments and critiques from the position of one who straddles inner, that is uchi, and outer, that is soto, worlds. Human and animal divides this world and the spirit world. If monkey may be seen as mirror in Japan, as Onuki Tierney contends, then perhaps the uncanny accomplishment of the Obama as monkey image is that through simian simulacrum, he becomes an intimate. In short, He becomes quasi-Japanese. This monkey plays multiply and ironically. That is, simultaneously lowly animal and powerful president, cute, infantilized presence, and caring parental figure, teenage skateboarder and adult politician. Obama's image, too, is complex, multiracial and African-American, growing up in the margins of American society, born in Hawaii, overseas childhood in Indonesia, and inhabiting the centers of elite global institutions. Obama as monkey is not the only image of the president in Japan, but it is one that combines racialization within a domestic narrative that draws upon affective bonds. If this is the tie that binds, then it does so on its own nationalistic terms, combining commodity fetishism, celebrity culture, and intimacy with blood ideology. Indeed, Obama's cool quotient in Japan rocks with what I call these simian undertones, extending kawaii as readily from the podium to the marketplace. Thank you.